You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Uh, welcome, Sophia viewers. Uh, I'm here uh, once again with uh, Bob Wright, although um, we're on my show this time instead of his. Interestingly enough, um, where when we were on his show, uh, uh, I interviewed him, and when now that he's on my show, he's basically going to ask me questions, but we think that the audience can handle the, a little weirdness, right, Bob? Oh, irony is so pervasive in modern life that I think <laughs> they can they can deal with this. Uh, so, yeah, so, I wanted to interrogate you about Wittgenstein, if that's okay. Who's, who's well, this? I'm happy to. Uh, he is certainly one of a handful of the philosophers that have most are most influencing my thought currently, and has been for a while. And so, I'm happy to uh, to talk about him and to uh, maybe. Uh, Fill people in on some stuff that they don't that they don't understand about his uh, thought. Okay, you did an earlier dialogue uh, on Sophia, I think, with an actual with someone actually knowledgeable about Wittgenstein. And I listened to that, and it was interesting, but it, it left me with some questions. And I had questions going in because I had heard that he was this fascinating guy. On the advice of a friend, I once tried to read the uh, Ray Monk uh, biography of Wittgenstein. Uh, this one, The Duty yep. of Genius, uh, and got, got about 150 pages into it. It's actually a really good book, but just never finished it for whatever reason. But he's a fascinating figure. He's all about, well, part of him is all about the meaning of life, I would say. And he's just kind of like a wild man of philosophy. I mean, this way he comes off in this book, you know. He uh, he kind of like shows up at Bertrand Russell's, <laughs> in Bertrand Russell's life and immediately kind of th- throws Russell off balance, right? When when uh, when when uh, Bertrand Russell is, uh, I guess, I think I, my sense is Bertrand Russell was entering the point in his career when he was starting to get a little insecure about his own ideas and stature, whether he was still on top of his analytical game. And That's and right. this Austrian like walks into his office yeah. and kind of blows him away it is maybe a cartoonish version yeah. of what happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know. Wittgenstein's an awfully odd duck. He's not a typical professional philosopher as we normally come to think of it. Um, and, um, you know, uh, he also has two very distinct phases, which literally are like a different person in terms of the, the work itself. Um, um, indeed, his later phase is largely a, a repudiation of his earlier phase. Um, he only ever published one book while he was alive. Everything else is posthumous. Um, and yes, he was, he was constantly misunderstood. Um, he, he was constantly having the following thing happen to him. That is that, um, everybody thought that he was on their team, right? <laughs> and they were always wrong, right? They were yeah. always wrong. And it was be- the, the mistake that they made was because they understood him superficially, but didn't understand him, uh, more deeply. And so, um, and he was also just temperamentally, a difficult person mm-hmm. um, um, was tormented about a lot of things um, and um, and was prickly and difficult. And, and I don't know if you read this book. It's a lot of fun called Wittgenstein's poker. No. Okay. So there was a famous scene. There was a famous scene um, when Karl Popper came to Cambridge mm-hmm. and there was great anticipation about the meeting of Wittgenstein and Popper because you know, they were two giant intellectual giants at the time. Um, they were both from, you know, from, 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 uh, from uh, the same place. 
and um, um, they're both, you know, from, from, from Austria and um, very different types of people. And people sort of wondered how that was going to go. And the story sort of became legend that Wittgenstein got so angry with Popper's presentation that he grabbed a poker from the fireplace and threatened to bash his skull in with it. Um, the thing that's interesting, though, is that the book recounts this story from the point of view of a number of Wittgenstein's uh, people who were in the room. And they recount, they all recount the story somewhat differently. So it's not clear exactly whether he threatened Popper, whether Popper started, you know, needling him. And, but it's just a very fun book. And one of the things about it is it gives you quite a big a bit of background on both Popper and Wittgenstein. So you can really get the sense of, of just what different kinds of people, what different sorts of personalities they are. Um, so that's a very good book on him. Kind of, a, kind of an Apollonian Dionysian thing. A little bit, although it probably doesn't cut that cleanly. Um, but um, but yeah, so it was. Uh, it, it's a very it's a very fun read. You can read the thing in an afternoon. It's very light, um, um, but 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 satisfying. Um, another really good one, if you want to get the sort of the larger frame of reference, is a book called Wittgenstein's Vienna, hmm. which I would strongly recommend. Also, I'll, I'll provide links okay. to these things, the Amazon pages of these things. And that gives you even a bigger sense of the world that Wittgenstein was coming out of. You know, Wittgenstein was an architect um, and was also uh, part of a very wealthy family, a partially Jewish family. That's also a very interesting dimension but of he, Wittgenstein. But he was brought up Christian or was Yes, and right. he himself had very uh, – And he was intensely Christian at least at some times of his life. In some ways he was, yes. And so he's a very difficult, conflicted, complicated man. And as well as being the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, in my opinion. In your opinion. Now, this is this is yeah. one kind of question I have. I mean, I assume there are people who have quite the opposite view because his work is, I mean, this one book, I haven't tried to read it. The, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus or whatever. Yeah, don't try to read that one. <laughs> so, okay, then there's also the only other text is philosophical. I mean, primary text is Philosophical Investigations, which is a posthumous uh, compilation yeah. of his private journals, right? His philosophical well, journals. But the thing, I mean, there's a there's a ton of posthumous posthumous stuff that was published. Um, uh, philosophical investigations, the blue and brown books, okay. the philosophical grammar, philosophical psychology, remarks on the foundations of mathematics. But it's um, all like so, his notes, kind of, or letters, or right. So there, yeah. so he left these massive, you know, amounts of notebooks and 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 and. The poor people who uh, Elizabeth Anscombe um, and G.H. Uh, von Wright, um, von Richt, I think it's pronounced, um, had to sort of you know put this stuff all together and figure out what goes with what. Um, some of these compilations are very loose in the sense that you know the any the order that's been put on them is largely the order of the editors, right? Um, I'm thinking of one called Culture and Value, which is very loose in that way. But others like the investigations and uncertainty, it's pretty clear that these were meant to be books. Right? These were meant to be, you know, the topics are very, you know, there's a continuity, there's, there's a coherence, there's a, um, and so uh, 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 some of them, you know, are clearly meant to have been together and some of them is just the editors putting together all these diaries and manuscripts and books and things that they have, so. Okay, well, there's one uh, line in the uh, tractate, is famous, uh, Tractatus is like, I guess, a kind of expanding outline, right? It's like there's each kind of chapter or section starts with an assertion, 
Yeah. The first one being the world is everything that is the case. Let's skip that for now. I want to get back to what, what the hell that means. But but the I think one of the last uh, kind of opening assertions that then unfolds into kind of subheads and subheads and subheads in outline form is whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. OK, if you, you, you know, and, and this tell me if I'm right in connecting this to what I think is uh the most fascinating question of interpretation. I mean, you said that he felt a lot of people didn't understand him and so on. And of course, it's 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 common with thinkers, especially thinkers who it seems like the the older they are, the further back they worked, the more contention there is over what they meant, kind of partly because there's less documentary evidence, maybe the further you go, back you go. But for whatever reason, there's been a lot of contention about what exactly he meant. And there's one issue that particularly fascinates me is I understand it. For a time, the prevailing view was he was a positivist, which is to say, roughly speaking, someone who thinks that the only valid form of knowledge is scientific knowledge, if that's not too crude a way of putting it. And 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 then the, the kind of pendulum shifted and the interpretation wasn't just that that wasn't quite right, but that it was almost the opposite of the case. And the truth was he was actually a mystic. In other words, someone who, among other things, believes that the most fundamental and important truths are not articulable. Right. You, you, you know, you cannot... Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's almost like this, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. I mean, does that mean a, a positivist might put a spin on that meaning? Look, if you can't say it, it's not meaningful. So shut the yep. hell up. Whereas a yep. mystic would yep. say, look, if you can't speak about don't bother trying to to articulate the ultimate truth. Yeah. And it is that is that indeed the yep. kind of hinge that this interpretation. Right. Yeah. So the tractate. So here, here. So so let me. You're, you're pretty much exactly right. Let me fill it in a little bit. Um, um, you're right. You're exactly right. Pretty much about the mistake that people made, and also about what really what he really meant, and etc. But let me just say a few things just to fill it out. Um, um, and I should also add that when I say I'm very influenced by Wittgenstein, I call myself a Wittgensteinian. I mean the later Wittgenstein. I mean the Wittgenstein of the investigations, not the Wittgenstein of the tractatus. That said, let me say one other thing. Um, what you what you said before about misunderstanding people is correct most of the time. In the case of Wittgenstein, I would say he's probably better understood now than he was understood at his, in the in the day. Um, he was very misunderstood by his contemporaries, um, uh, including the the members of the Vienna Circle. Well, the I think he said that even Bertrand Russell didn't understand yeah, the well, that, that's, which is that, interesting that's, that's, because Bertrand Russell was the only one in the world who purported to understand right, it. So, right. in other words, when the Tractatus was published. There was not one person, not one reputable person other than Wittgenstein who claimed to understand it and did in Wittgenstein's view and think it was good. So right. it was well, like it was like a blurbless book, you know. The like Vienna that. Circle thought they understood it and they invited him over and they wanted to make him the you know the, our 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 prize our prize uh, our, our 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 prize banner, right? Um, look, the Tractatus. What it attempts to do is pretty is relatively simple. What the way it does it is not so simple, but really what it's doing is trying to give <coughs> um, to talk about how what the relationship is between language and reality. Okay, so how does how does language represent reality? What is it? And this actually is an issue that interests Wittgenstein his entire career. What you know, and it's a very sort of mysterious thing, right? You know, how does one thing represent something else, right? You know, what makes a picture 
of a horse. How does that represent the horse? Now, someone might say, well, it looks like the horse. Um, there are problems with that, however. Well, um, and should, can we interject that for a while, yeah. the picture was the metaphor he used, right, That's to right. describe the relationship between language and reality. It's like the picture theory of language. That's language right. is just like taking a picture of reality. I think he later came to think that was simplistic. Right. Well, not just simplistic, completely wrong um, uh -huh. in every way. Um, but in the Tractatus, what he tries to say is, look, he says, the world has a structure. And the way that language represents the world is by mirroring that structure, right? Um, and so, you know, the world is, you know, cons consists of, 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 of a number of facts. And a statement has, in a sense, parts that correspond to those facts, right? Um, the thing that, you know, and, and, and so it's, it, he, it is referred to as the picture theory of meaning. Whether he called it that, I, I, I would, I, I'm not sure. I, I somehow, for some reason, would doubt it. But, but um, a sentence is, in a way, a picture of a fact. Um, and you can sort of see that, right? So, like, you know, think about a statement like the cat is on the, cat is on the mat, right? And so the fact consists of some animal having a certain property, and the way that the sentence represents that is by structurally mimicking it, right? So we have a subject, which refers to the thing, and we have a predicate that refers to the property of the thing. And so the sentence has the same structure as the fact, right? And that's the way that the sentence represents or mirrors the fact, okay? Um, and of course, there's a million complications and stuff like that, but it's not necessary. You're right that at the end, he says this weird thing at the end, and the positivists see the positivists love this theory. You because mean the line thing, I quoted? Or yeah, the yeah. thing about um, what can't be stated has to be we have to remain silent. The positivists love this because what they saw was you know, the positivists were basically modern empiricists, and so what they saw was a a theory that tells us how set what sentences mean and how they mean things, and it's also a theory that allows us to eliminate all the metaphysical rubbish that we don't like because it can't be represented in this way in language. And Wittgenstein even says so at the end. What they didn't understand was that Wittgenstein thought that actually all the important things belong to the last category, right? That in a sense, you know, it's almost like the difference between two interpretations of Kant. Some people interpret Kant as, as, in a sense, the last of the Enlightenment empiricists, that he, what he's interested in is showing what the limits of knowledge are. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how the analytic tradition interprets him. Then there's a whole other tradition that interprets Kant as actually um, being the first to expand knowledge to include the transcendental, right? And that's essentially how the continental philosophers interpreted him, as a kind of idealist, right? And a similar mistake, a similar thing can happen with Wittgenstein. You can view the Tractatus as essentially being about the limits of language, right? You know, language really can do this, this very small thing, right? Or you can view it as, in a sense, um, limiting everything else, right? And so in a sense, ruling out all the things that can't be expressed through language. The positivists interpreted him in the latter way, and they were simply wrong. That's not how he meant it. And that's why he never identified as a positivist. He rejected the, the association. And um, and never had really anything good to say about the logical empiricists for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, uh, and so and so I think that with respect to Russell, what happened with Russell was Russell was on board for the, the early Wittgenstein 
because Russell himself, while not a positivist, was sympathetic to the sort of the roughly empiricist view of the world, um, not entirely. Um, but he also saw um, Wittgenstein doing something similar to what Frege was doing, that is giving us a theory of meaning that can be somewhat presented in a somewhat rigorous fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was the later Wittgenstein that completely baffled Russell. I, I think I think what happened is as Wittgenstein began to change and to develop, um, the to the extent to which Russell understood him, and and was sympathetic to the view, shrank more and more until I, I think probably uh, it was a combination of him being unsympathetic to the direction Wittgenstein was going in, and also uh, not frankly not understanding it. Um, um, now, Russell, this was after Russell had been engaged in this huge project with Alfred North Whitehead to kind of, I Principia. guess, yeah. Principia Mathematica to kind of, I guess, formalize the very foundations of mathematics in a sense or make it. Well, more than that. I mean, look, that's why I mentioned Frege. So Frege does this first. It's called the Logisys program. And the idea is supposed to show that mathematics can be derived from pure logic. That is that, to put this a little bit technically, that the truths of, of mathematics are actually analytic truths um, because they are reducible to truths of logic. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of obscure and arcane reasons why people wanted to do this. It has to do with, um, with Kant, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and with, the, with Kant's uncomfortable placing of arithmetic truths into the category of what he called the synthetic a priori. Um, which if you're interested in, we can talk about, but it's not crucial. But the, qu the um, question is kind of, do you have to assume anything kind of out of the blue to get started with mathematics? Right. Or, do, or do the very foundations of it, you know, do they lie in logic itself? Are they unassailable? Right. And, right. and the, the project of the Principia, I think, was premised on the idea, on the optimistic answer to that. We can make it all, it's all right. kind of logical. But, but, but then later... Well, Russell's, I mean, this, this claim grave, fell into grave doubt, but I, I was kind of thinking that one thing that gave Russell doubt about it was some things Wittgenstein said. Well, he didn't have to be given doubt about it. Kurt Gödel refuted it. Right. right, that was the... Gödel absolutely simply refuted it. I mean, I mean, when Gödel produced the incompleteness theorem, right. that was considered to be the death. The, and, the, and was this before and, the encounter with Wittgenstein? I don't know the dates. But I, I, I thought there was a quote. Where, I thought there was a quote where Russell says something like Wittgenstein, like you know, he he like there's some like ocean metaphor, like waves crashing on. He destroyed my something or other. But maybe um, it's a long time. Well, I you know I'd have to go back and look at the dates of of when Gödel when Gödel's incompleteness theorem was was published. Uh -huh. But I was under the impression that, or I was well, was that what killed off the Logisys program was Gödel was Gödel's incompleteness yeah. theorem. Um, what Wittgenstein did was, in a sense, reject the entire um, mainline tradition of analytic philosophy that had come up to, up, up to his day. In other words, the, the later Wittgenstein, the Wittgenstein of the investigations, is a repudiation not just of Russell, but of logical empiricism of all, and of all the sort of the, 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 the type of philosophy that was being done in Oxford and Cambridge uh, at the time. And maybe you should elaborate on that a little, because analytical philosophy is a term you hear a lot. I don't really understand it, except I think it means, I remember Russell kind of gives an advertisement for it at the end of A History of Western Philosophy. And I think, as I recall, he says, the idea is, look, we're scaling down our ambitions compared to philosophers of the past, compared to Hegel and so on. We don't have these sweeping, you know, theories of metaphysics and history and so on. But 
what we the progress we're making we feel we can be confident of we're like clarifying the meaning of yeah. words yeah. And, and 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 we're working at a fine grain maybe less ambitious level but we're confident of the gains we're making in at least clarifying questions and the meaning yeah. of philosophical questions right is that is that the spirit of analytic philosophy it's part of it i mean so we can talk about the split between analytical and continental philosophy in several ways it's a split that doesn't exist prior to kant it's a post kantian split and it's largely the result of the differing interpretations of Kant. Um, um, and so up until Kant, there's one philosophical tradition in the West. After Kant, it splits. So on your analytic side, you're going to have people like Bentham and Mill, right? And on your continental side, you're going to have people like Hegel and Fichte and Schopenhauer, okay? And then once you get into the 20th century, the Continentals are going to be people like Husserl and Heidegger and Derrida and Foucault and Claude Lévi-Strauss and, and the phenomenologists. It's not, it's not getting better as you list those names. Right. The, the, the analytics is going to be your, your Russells, your G.E. Moores, your Quines, your Wittgensteins, your Kripkes, your Okay, so that, that, that's just the, who they are, right? Yeah. We can also characterize the difference in style. The Continentals are much more literary. Right. Um, they draw much more from sociological, historical, and other what I would call social scientific approaches uh, to looking at, at human nature, human behavior. The analytics are very influenced by hard sciences, physics, especially logic and mathematics. Okay, and so the whole way of the whole way of writing is different. The whole way the analytics are much clearer. The continentals are very obscure. They're very hard to read. Finally, in terms of the point you were making, which I think is absolutely is sort of correct, um, the analytic philosophers see the major role of philosophy as that of being conceptual analysis for the purposes of clarifying and understanding and identifying mistakes of, of certain structural mistakes. They are less in the business of producing substantial knowledge, right? Um, the continentals in that sense are more continuous with the older tradition of philosophy that philosophy can 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 produce genuine substantial knowledge in its own right it's not simply a tool of analysis it's not simply an analytical tool so that would be the a lot of people though will you know the problem is that this, these distinctions are very um hard to make in any rigorous sense but i think that what we just said is a pretty decent approximation just so people can get a sense uh, of what the difference is. Okay, and so where does Wittgenstein fit on that? Maybe you said he cast doubt on the analytic tradition, but he also doesn't strike me as the continental no. type, as fitting no. into that list of names. No, no. He's not a continental philosopher um, in, in, by any stretch, although in style, in some ways, he's more like them than at least the later Wittgenstein is more, because it's very sort of obscure and there are these gnomic sort of utterances and Things are not arranged in a kind of an argumentative order. It's almost aphoristic. You read some of the later stuff, it's almost like reading Nietzsche in terms of the way that it's structured. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of his interests, concerns, and the substance of his philosophy, he's very much firmly in the analytic tradition. And his later philosophy is related in a lot of ways to what was called the ordinary language tradition of philosophy in Oxford, mm -hmm. which is represented by most people will know mostly by Gilbert Ryle and by J.L. Austin. 
Uh, and so is I, that I is that say, not part of the analytic tradition? It is. It is. It is. The look. The analytic. That's why I said these. You know, these the definitions are a bit rough. I mean, the 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 most well known part of the analytic tradition of that first half of the 20th century is positivism, right? But it's not the only one. And look, the disagreement between the ordinary language philosophers, like Austin and Ryle, and a logical empiricist or positivist like A.J. Ayer was enormous, mm -hmm. almost as big as the difference between an analytic and a continental philosopher in terms of disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, it's, you know, the, 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 these, these schools, these, 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 you know, analytic, these are huge tents. There are some family resemblances that you can use to characterize, but they're big tents, right? But Wittgenstein is not easy to categorize, it, it sounds like. No, I, mean, I would say if you wanted to categorize him in his early career, he was doing something that looked a little bit like what the logical positivists were doing, but, the, but wasn't. And if you talk about his later philosophy, he was doing something that looked a little bit like what the ordinary language philosophers were doing, but really wasn't. In other words, um, he was much bigger than his imitators and much more complicated, mm -hmm. much more complicated than his imitators, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he started out, even in Tractatus, more skeptical about the ability of language to capture reality than people interpreted him as being. Yes. And thereafter, yes. he grew even more skeptical. Yeah, well, and, and there and afterwards, he didn't just become skeptical. His entire view of what language is and how it works changed. And what was his right. what was his mature view of what language is? I mean, okay, so so one of the real and it's early on in the investigations. One of the key metaphors uh, is what is what's called the toolbox metaphor, right? So in the Tractatus, the basic idea is that language is an in, is an instrument of representation. It's it's essentially referential. That's what it does. Okay, words refer to things, mm -hmm. predicates refer to properties, sentences in a sense represent facts, okay? In the investigations, Wittgenstein realizes this is only one function of language. Language has all sorts of functions. So let me give you an example. Language has performative uses, right? I can use language to command. I can use language to question. I can use language to warn. I can, none of those involve stating facts or representing states of affairs, right? Um, there's a, there's by, a by the way, this is kind of implicitly Darwinian, this view. In other words, if you, if you took an evolutionary view and asked, well, how did language actually evolve? What do, what do like chimps do with the crude precursors of language? You know, when they make an utterance, what does it mean? Well, sometimes they're reconciling. Sometimes they're intimidating. Sometimes there are these functional, socially functional things that the crude precursors of language do. And a, and a purely, you know, a thoroughly Darwinian philosopher might kind of follow that trail through evolutionary time in order to arrive at an idea of what language is. Now, Now, was Witt, did Wittgenstein get it all into evolution or Darwin? He was living in post-Darwinian times. I, you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't know whether, I, I, I simply don't know what his views on evolution were, if he articulated any at all. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you um, that, he was very unsympathetic. The later, the later work is very unsympathetic to any kind of reductive treatment of of human uh, of human social uh, uh, behavior, which which you know construed very broadly includes all interpersonal behavior, 
um, uh, uh, behavior in the various spheres, economics, politics, etc. Um, um, he, 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 he simply thinks that science is about a very different kind of business um, and uh, uh, that really um, scientific questions are entirely different sorts of questions than the sorts of questions that we typically ask when we're talking uh, about, about human beings within, within the social framework. Um, um, but just getting back to the thing about language, so, so I don't deny it may be the case that actually it, it may turn out that language has a sort of developmental arc that the, the primitive versions of it you know, do are of a certain sort, and then the the more advanced versions of it are different. But I don't. Wittgenstein doesn't really say okay. anything about anyway, that. Anyway, it is. It, it, I would just note it's interesting yeah. that that now he's getting much more functional. Right. It sounds as he moves on in, in his approach to language. So this insight that language is used for a lot of different things, not simply to represent the world and to state facts, mm-hmm. um, is expressed in this metaphor of a toolbox. He says language is like a toolbox, and you know. Sometimes you need a screwdriver and sometimes you need a hammer and the thing you need the screwdriver for is not going to be served by the hammer and vice versa. Um, this insight was taken up by uh, J.L. Austin, who wrote an entire book called How to Do Things with Words, which essentially describes the way in which language can be used other performatively other than to state facts. Um, so he gives theories of illocutionary force, perlocutionary force, and all the other uh, performative dimensions of language. Um, so one thing that Wittgenstein changes his view on a lot is on the idea that language is primarily referential. In the, in the early Wittgenstein, he, that's what he thinks, right? He thinks it's primarily referential, which is why it's a very limited domain. It can only do one sort of thing. And all these other aspects of life, where we're not trying to point to things or refer to things or predicate properties of things, all that other kind of discourse philosophy can't tell you anything about, right? We can't, we can't, right? The later Wittgenstein says, wait a minute, that's, just, that's a crazy way to think of things. The way to think of things instead is language is itself a much broader, more diverse phenomena that has a whole bunch of different functions, right? Um, and so all these other aspects of life that don't simply involve representing the world, of course, they also involve language, but language employed uh, in a different fashion, Right. Um, the second thing, major change, is that with respect to the representational function of language, um, he changed an awful lot in terms of how he understood uh, how language does that. For one thing, how language refer- how we refer to things, um, uh, whether words and expressions have definite definitions, right? uh, which he thought they did not for the most part other than in the formal languages, like in mathematics, you know, I can define the word square formally, mm-hmm. but I cannot describe the word, define the word game for, formally, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is also the largest part of his later philosophy, which is the anti-representationalism, which we can go into if you want. Um, but that, those, those are the sort of the major dimensions of his later, his later work. Language is like a toolbox, um, um, most terms don't admit of precise definitions, right? mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, representation is not what we think it is. Um, um, uh, meaning is not what we think it is. Uh, uh, at least, not what is traditionally was tra- has traditionally been thought since Descartes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so he goes from saying 
in the early years. Language is about representation, and here's how it works. It sounds kind of straightforward. It's like a picture of reality to to saying, actually, language is about much more than representation. And the the representative part is more complicated than I at first thought. Much more complicated, yes. And so you you can see him moving... In the, I, I mean, this sounds closer and closer to a kind of mysticism, not in the woo sense of mysticism, but in the sense of what mysticism says about the relationship between language and reality. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. Although it may have started I'm, out that way. I, 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 I mean, as, as you said, the, the Tractatus was more, was closer to mystical than people appreciated at the time, or was well, certainly was less positivist. Right, right. Look, I think that Wittgenstein himself, was a kind of a mystical guy and had a lot of very, you know, yeah. uh, if you read culture and value, which is that very loose collection, um, you get a lot of that. That's all this stuff. Let me, on the let me actually read something just cause I happened to, you know, when I read the, the part of uh, the Ray Monk biography that I read 15 years ago, I turned down some pages and marked some things. And today before uh, I Skyped you, I opened it. And this is just the page I happened to open it to. And it gives you some sense of just the sheer intensity of his thought. These are, this is like from a journal he's keeping during World War I when he's, you know, he's a soldier. And here's, here's the series. Of, it's very characteristic in being kind of like aphoristic, like a series of assertions that are said to be related. He says, I know that this world exists. And then he starts listing a bunch of other things he knows, apparently, because they all start with that. I know that this world exists, that I am placed in it like my eye in its visual field. That something about it is problematic, which we call its meaning. That this meaning does not lie in it, but outside it. That life is the world. That my will permeates the world. That my will is good or evil. (laughs) Therefore, I'm not sure about the therefore here, a logical connection, but therefore, that good and evil are somehow connected with the meaning of the world. Then he gets into God, says the meaning of life i.e. the meaning of the world, we can call God. So that's not like a statement of faith. It's almost a way of uh, a definitional thing. The meaning of life, we can call God and connect with this, the comparison of God to a father. In other words, so the, the idea of God as a father may just be a good metaphor for something about the meaning of life. I don't know. And then he says, to pray is to think about the meaning of life. Then he says, I cannot bend the happenings of the world to my will. I am completely powerless. And the final thing in this excerpt, at least, is I can only make myself independent of the world, and so in a certain sense master it by renouncing any influence on happenings. I mean, this just gives you something a sense that, first of all, he's, he's, a, he's intense. I mean, yeah. he's like being driven to ask these questions about the meaning of things. He, he, he does it in some sense from a religious background, um, and uh, – I don't know. Make of that what you will. I, you know, I he 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 was intensely interested in religion, and um, you know that's why I recommended the the collection that's called Culture and Value because that's where he talked. That's where all of his writing on that stuff is contained. The, the difficulty is is that I that unlike his philosophy, his linguistic philosophy, which is the bulk of what he do, did, I don't know that it's clear that there is a view there. You know what I mean? In other words, I could tell you what his anti-representationalism consists of. I can tell you about how he problematizes the relationship between the subject and the object, subjective and objective. But if you ask me, what's his view of religion? I couldn't tell you. There, right? there is. It's com- coming to mind is a fragmentary quote where he says something about 
religion or religious faith or something is like the feeling of being absolutely safe in some sense or some some form of absolute security. I don't know the exact quote. I haven't seen it in years, but but who knows? I mean, he probably said a billion of these things and changed them from from year to year. But notice something about that. I mean, that one that you just read is that there's this there is a certain consistency, even with these very far out sort of statements with his the main bulk of his philosophy. And that is that um, what we mean by what we say is not always obvious on the surface. In other, in other, in other words, you know, um, yes, the word God looks like it refers to a guy, right? Um, but in fact, that's not how the word works in our language, right? Um, and that's very sort of reminiscent of, of not just Wittgenstein, but, but of the ordinary language philosophy's way about going around, uh, going about uh, approaching philosophical problems. They thought, and Wittgenstein in this is, is the same, that a lot of philosophical problems are not genuine problems. They're problems that arise because um, uh, of bewitchment uh, by the surface appearance of ordinary languages. So, for example, Ryle thinks that the famous mind-body problem that goes back to Descartes is a pseudo-problem. It's because we don't understand, we mistake how we use mentalistic vocabulary, how we use mentalistic uh, terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is in both Wittgenstein and in this ordinary language tradition, the, the real belief that clarity in philosophy, and that will include, he means philosophy broadly, so that will include clarity in theology, it will include clarity in a lot of areas, um, often re- requires paying very close attention to how we actually use these terms, the many different ways in which the, we use these terms. Um, and that's very different from the logical positivist tradition, which, if anything, viewed ordinary language as defective and in need of being in need of correction. Mm-hmm. Right. So, 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 you know, this is a very sort of different way of appropriate in both cases, language is at the center, but for the positivists, um, natural language was something to be cleaned up. Uh, in favor of a more logically perfect language in which we could then see very clearly what are real problems and what aren't, um, as opposed to uh, Wittgenstein, Ryle, and some of the others for whom um, there's no escape from ordinary language. Um, There's no chance of logically fixing it. It's it's the wrong way of even thinking about it. Um, And most of, or a lot of the the things that we think are some of the deepest problems really um, evaporate once you pay very close attention to how we use uh, how we use the the various expressions uh, that 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 the, the problems are stated in, right? Okay. And, and for Ryle, that meant kind of getting rid of the problem of consciousness in a certain sense. Well, we, we we needn't go very far into that, but he kind of he kind of explained away. He kind of he as you said, he thought the mind body problem wasn't a problem. Ryle's a behaviorist, right? Okay. Which, so, which so, in philosophical terms, as opposed to psychological terms, right. means kind of that right. you don't think consciousness exists, right? That's right. Um, but it's more. But Ryle's analysis is interesting because it kind of shows you a way to look at problems that goes way beyond uh, Ryle. So you know, this can be stated in thirty seconds, right? So so we have a sentence like um, uh, John hit Bill, right? And the word hit clearly refers to a bodily, a bodily movement. Mm-hmm. So then we see a statement like John hates Bill. And we think that the word hates is doing the same kind of work as the word hits. And so if hits refers to a bodily movement, hates must remove, refer to some mental act. Mm-hmm. 
And then we might say, John hit Bill because John hates Bill. And now we have a mental cause of a behavioral action. And Ryle says that in so doing, we've created a whole bunch of philosophical problems. We've created a mind-body dualism problem. We've created a mind-body causality problem, and so on and so forth. And Ryle says this is totally unnecessary. The word hates, although grammatically superficially similar to the word hits, is nothing like it, right? Mentalistic terms don't refer to mentalistic actions. Mentalistic terms are a dispositional way of talking about behavior. Mm -hmm. So to say that John hates Bill is to say something like, John is likely to do things like hit Bill. Yes, although hatred isn't always manifest that way, but we shouldn't get we shouldn't get down we shouldn't example, get down in the weeds here. I, I I take the point. And let me ask you: is so yeah. is the language part of Wittgenstein the part that most interests you? The question of language to reality, the relationship of language to reality. Um, the most interesting part of Wittgenstein to me is several fold: the problematizing of the subjective objective distinction. So there's the inner, the mind, and then there's the world, which is the outer. He problem, he makes a mess of that. Wait, that you mean that, he makes a mess of it in the sense that he accurately calls attention to its messiness or he, he okay. Yes, yes. That basic Cartesian framework, um, which most philosophers still hold. Um, he completely, he demonstrates its, its, its incoherence. So that's yeah, one but thing. He's not, um, but he's not a behaviorist, right? I mean, he has often been called that. Huh. Now, he, now, he is not any kind of ist, right? I mean, he does not present mm -hmm. theories like that. He's not a theorist. And so to saddle him with any ism or ist is always going to be a mistake. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of behavioristic elements to his philosophy. And that's the second part that's so influential on my own view. And that is that um, in terms of representation, representing the world through language, right, and in thought, that that is fundamentally social, it's irreducibly social, it's social all the way down. In other words, there is no, the, the effort to sort of say, well, um, language is social, you know, language is social, and it's preceded by thinking, which is mental, and what that really is, is a bunch of brain chemistry he shows why all of that cannot that that cannot be correct, right? Um, and that's where his that's where the private language argument comes in, the rule following argument, um, and all of these things that he's most well known for. So um, those probably are the two things that influenced me the most: his 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 problematizing of the subject object distinction, the inner versus the outer, and his uh, and his demonstrating that meaning and therefore language and even thought have an irreducibly social dimension um, um, such that we can't even talk about what our thoughts are in a private context. We can only talk about them in a public context. Hmm. I mean, what would be an example of that? I mean, you can't tell anybody about them in a private context because to tell somebody about them, you have to be in, in a social context, but that's not what he means, right? No, what he means is that to the extent that a thought has a content, right, it has a meaning, right? So let's say um, I'm thinking that it's raining. Mm -hmm. So that thought has a certain content. Um, that content can only be understood in a public context, in, 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 a, in a social context, because of his rule following and private language arguments, which if you want, I can go into. Um, and as a result, 
one can't ascribe a thought to a person in conceptual isolation from others. In other words, in other words, the whole idea that the Descartes idea that you have the thought first, right? Mm -hmm. And that thought is a mental object, internal private mental object that then you wind up expressing in a public language. That's a mistake. The thought itself, we can't make sense of what the thought itself is, its content in private terms. It can only be understood in public terms. I'm not it's sure what that means. What, what, what does it mean? I mean, okay. So, so the only way to really to explain this is to say something very quickly about rules and rule following, right? So, for Wittgenstein, essentially, to 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 have a concept is to um, know how to use it. Um, so, to have the concept of of reigning is to know how to use the word reigning correctly. Okay, what that means is. It's to know how to follow certain rules. Language is essentially a, an elaborate exercise in following rules. That's how Wittgenstein thinks of it. So, and, so wait, let me, is it yeah. kind of like to think is to be able to talk about the thing you're thinking about? Depending on what you mean by that, I might say yes. Um, um, but to have a concept, any concept, mm-hmm. to have the concept of rain is to know how to use the word rain correctly, right? Right. Right. That, 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 that's, 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 how he, that's how he, that's how he conceives of language. That language, meaning is use. The meaning of a word is its customary use. What it is to know the meaning of a word is to know how it's used, right? And to be able to use it correctly. As opposed to, let's say, the traditional view is the, to know the meaning of a word is to grasp its definition, to mentally entertain its definition. Oh, right? I see. Yeah, we are not we are not dictionaries. That's true. We are we are right. users of language, and, right. and our so thought it reflects that. Yes. So the meaning is use, and um, our, our, to know a word, to, to have a concept, or to know a word is to know its proper use, is to know how to use it correctly, um, which means to to follow a number of rules. Right. Now here's the kick. Here's the here's the crux of the like, argument. Like grammatical rules and stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Wittgenstein says it makes no sense to speak of a rule or to follow a rule. In private. Okay. So let me give you the example. Let me, let, me, let me explain why. Okay. So let's take a very simple example. Suppose um, I start counting off two, four, six, eight, and I ask you what number comes next, and you say 10. And if I ask you why, you say, because you've been following the rule plus two, add two. Mm-hmm. Now I say to you, well, no, the answer is 15, because the rule that you've been following isn't the plus two rule. It's, the, it's add two until you get to eight, after which add seven. Mm-hmm. Now, Wittgenstein then wants to ask, you know, what fact about me, what fact is there that I could point to? that makes it the case that I was following the first rule and not the second. Everything I've done is consistent with me following both of these rules. Everything I've thought is consistent with me following both of these rules. And in truth, everything I've done is is consistent with infinitely many rules. What makes it the case that I'm following this rule rather than that one is simply 
that the answer of 10 will be accepted and the answer of 15 will not. Okay. So society, society will determine. That's right. And it's not, and it's not a matter of sort of voting, right? It's not that kind of social, right? In other words, society, we, we agree that there, that this is the way one goes on when one does this, right? Um, and what that means is that in private isolation, not only can one not speak of the correct or incorrect following of a rule, it doesn't even make sense to speak of a specific, of there being a specific rule, right? All from the internal perspective without, without, you know, in complete, we're not talking about Robinson Crusoe, right? Who somebody who already has a language, we're talking about conceptual isolation. Like born, uh, born on an island without any humans around. Conceptual isolation. That's right. Um, it literally everything I do is is consistent with following infinitely many different rules. And this is the hard thing for people to sort of get. This is one of the hardest things about Wittgenstein, and that is that meaning and language is social all the way down. <laughs> In other words, it's not reducible to any any prior, more fundamental, right? Because the typical way you tell the story is that the language part is public, the meaning part is ultimately mental and private, and that ultimately is some physiochemical, right? And that whole story, if Wittgenstein is right about language and about rules and about privacy, that whole story has got to be wrong, right? The entire story has got to be wrong. Um, and that, that's why the rule, follow, in my opinion, the rule following argument is the hinge. Everything rests on it, right? Um, the private language follows exactly from the rule. There can't be a private language because you can't follow rules privately. You can't even conceive of a rule privately. Right? So that's, that's how that's supposed to go. And did that, is that still a respected view today? So, No. Now, 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 let me make a caveat. It is respected amongst a very, very respectable minority of philosophers. So let me give you somebody who, who I think uh, not only respected it, but wrote a book about it, and that's Saul Kripke. So Saul Kripke wrote a whole book called Wittgenstein on Rules in Private Language. Um, uh, Kripke, a, a number of other elements of Kripke's philosophy are Wittgensteinian. His theory of proper names is Wittgensteinian, Okay. However, and Kripke is, you know, a, in the top five philosophers, a philosopher since the Second World War, right? However, the reason I would say Wittgenstein is for the most part ignored. He's never been successfully refuted on any of these things. The problem is that his views are inconsistent with a whole bunch of research programs that people desperately want to do. Look, if Wittgenstein is right, the entire um, uh, 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 computational theory of mind is hopeless, right? Mm -hmm. Most cognitive science, hopeless, right? right? And so, you know, this is, this, is, this is what gets you into interesting territory, and that is that philosophers are, in the end of the day, people. And Wittgenstein's philosophy really limits, you know, closes off a lot of avenues of investigation that a lot of people want to engage in. Um, um, this partly has to do with science envy. It partly has to do with technology. It partly has to do with crazy people wanting to live forever and download themselves into computers. In other words, there's a lot of 
things that people so Vic, want. Wittgenstein's theories don't permit that. Well, how could they? I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, uh, uh, one can only have concepts and thoughts as part of a social public environment, right? <laughs> right. The idea that you could somehow. Well, yeah, but I mean, presumably, the idea is that that our whole our structures of thought and habits of thought to some extent I take this to mean our structures of thought and habits of thought have been shaped by a social context and right. but, 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 but if at this moment you like freeze my body and I my brain has been shaped by all this social stuff and upload it and then download it to England where conveniently I would speak the language and put me in some physical form there uh what's the, what's the it well, it's, it's all the information that specifies my physical structure, including my brain, which presumably is then reflected in all my behavioral tendencies and subjective experience. Yeah, but, but look, the extent to which your subjective experience has determinate content, right? Your subjective experience is, you know, you think, you think in words and pictures and all of that. Involve, is bound up with following of various rules, right? And so that's not something that's isolatable. Well, you could you could create a computer that would have all of these things. Well, we don't know that it would have subjective experience, but it would have all the things that correspond to subjective experience in our right. case, such as talking, and they right. would they could be determined by these rules that are in some sense social and so look, on. Look, here's what no no look, look here's what I don't mean. Wittgenstein doesn't care about substrate. In other words, right. So long as the thing we're talking about, you know, engages in, and look, this is the, you know, he is somewhat behavioristic, you know, so long as its behavior is part of a sort of social framework um, of behaviors um, and is understood and accepted by the other actors, that he doesn't care what it's made of. I'm objecting more narrowly to a lot of the cognitive science and computationalism starts with this essentially Cartesian view of the relationship of thought to language treats thoughts as private and therefore as analyzable, um, uh, as reducible, right, right, to, to various either physical states or to various computational states. Um, in other words, my, the, the Wittgenstein objection is not the machiney part. It's the extent to which most of these programs are still essentially Cartesian, right? That is that they view the thinking as something that goes on inside and that is completely characterizable in and of itself. That doesn't require reference to the social framework in order uh, 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 to speak of it, right? Um, so that's why you have, you know, you'll have things like uh, philosophers of mind or cognitive scientists saying, "Well, the feeling of pain is the firing of of these various neurons." Right? Um, yeah. Although I, I don't take, I mean, I or the belief that Florida is warm in the summer is identical with these various neurological events, right? right? I, I, well, there's two ways. Those are kind of, well, you can say on the one hand, uh, my sensation of pain is the molecules, or you can say it's inexorably correlated with the molecules, and those are two different claims. Uh, in any event, I guess I didn't take, based on what you said, I didn't take Wittgenstein to really be addressing that kind of question. No. Is maybe the, maybe the reason I, I thought he wouldn't have anything particular to say about how downloadable my the contents of my thought and identity are or are not. 
because I, I, I thought he just wasn't really taking a position on the whole kind of Cartesian thing and the mind-body problem in, with but, his theory of language. Well, he doesn't take – it's not much of a, on the mind-body problem, but, but the Cartesian thing is not just the mind-body problem. It's about the subjective and the objective, and it's about the idea that the subjective is prior to the objective, right? That is that – Well, is that's that, Descartes' view, yeah. Right, and that the subjective is entirely um, self-sufficient. That is that yeah. I can have – you know, you know the whole idea. The whole idea. Yeah, but you don't think many cognitive scientists hold that view, do you? And, and I, well, I do think that they that they have rough, roughly a Cartesian view of the mental, except that they're not dualists, right? <laughs> well, uh, when you take the dualism out of Cartesian, no, but that's simply a matter of substance, right? But but they do think that a belief or a thought is inside your head. They don't understand the extent to which a thought is a essentially a public object. Why? Because the thought involves concepts. Concepts have meanings. Meanings are the following of rules, and that can only that's only makes sense and intelligible in a public context. Um, so, no, it's not. They're not. They're, they reject the substance dualism, mm-hmm. but so, they're still essentially Cartesians. So it's kind of. It sounds like it's almost like it's not like Wittgenstein is just saying like. Uh, I mean, in other words, these 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 some of the people you're talking about might say, "Well, we'll build the robot. We'll we'll give we'll program its thinking ability. Then we'll send, stick it into this send it into the society of robots. And of course, then all of its thoughts will, in some sense, be social. It'll be interacting. But it sounds like you're almost saying Wittgenstein would say, "No, wait a second. The sociality is so fundamental. You can't build the thing in the first place." Well, I don't know about that. I mean, look. That would have to be what the case, right? It would have to be an interacting, intelligible, you know, uh, socially functioning entity. The well, knowledge to... of the social context would right. have to be part of building the thing. That's, That's right. But but you see, most of the cognitive science is focused on the the mind brain connection, right? Right. So the mind is the brain, and mental states are states of the brain. And so really they're crypto-Cartesians. In a sense, they replace mind-body dualism with brain-body dualism. But nonetheless, they view the... Wait, wait, the brain is on the body side of the track. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. I, I'm going to link to this. I, I, I think I linked to this before, but this is actually... Um, there's a dialogue, there's a panel discussion on this. Uh, on this, what's called crypto Cartesianism, that's in so much of cognitive science. I think it's crypto behaviorism. I think that's like Dan Dennett. I think he's a crypto behaviorist. Well, well, Dan Dennett's a different story. Okay. I mean, Dan Dennett. Dan Dennett is an anti-reductionist. He doesn't think that there actually are any beliefs or desires or thoughts. That's what I mean. Right. right? But he, he thought he thinks that it's a useful fiction. I mean, Dennett. Dennett really. Yeah, but is if a, you say to him, "You don't believe consciousness exists," he gets all irate and says, "You're misunderstanding me." But I just think that's the crypto part. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, um, so anyway, anyway, but we're well. Listen, like we're at like an hour, an so, hour and three minutes, and so we've already uh, alienated a number of people, no, no doubt, who, who bailed out at various parts along the way. But uh, we we could certainly have another conversation about this kind of stuff. That's for yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. And so, what are your uh, what are your big what's going on with you? Uh, the rest, what, what's so, give us a heads up on some of the upcoming programming that we could look we might be looking forward to. Oh, on meaning of life. I mean, it's gotten to where I I have to consult the calendar. There's so much stuff. 
Uh, I know that uh, before long, Susan Gelman, who is, I think, a psychologist at Michigan, is going to talk about the psychology of essentialism. Um, you know, uh, the uh, – um, let me actually look at my calendar. Uh, now, some of these may actually appear before this has appeared, given the fact that these don't always run in the sequence that they were recorded. Um, but, you know, why people perceive things as having essences. Uh, and and how that manifests itself in experiments about that, which gets into philosophy. I mean, yeah, there are absolutely. there are you know like uh, like Buddhist philosophy is very anti essentialist, yeah. for example. Um, the uh, George Johnson, who's been on here, um, who's been on Blogging Heads a lot. I'm gonna, yeah, he's usually on with John Horgan, right? He is, but I want to interrogate him about um, the sense in which scientific knowledge he he believes is kind of reliable. He wrote a book. Of, called Fire in the Mind, which he'd, he'd probably object to it being uh, depicted as postmodern in its in, in whatever skeptical air it had, but there's a little uh, skepticism there. Uh, tomorrow I'm taping on with Melanie Brewster, who's uh, an atheist who wrote, who, who edited a book called Atheism in America about atheists, how, uh, it's, it's, I think it's going to be about how atheists feel more persecuted than I would think they would feel. Because I'm in a demographic where I think most of the people I know are either atheists or agnostic, and they make no bones about it. But I think it's true that there are these big swaths of America where it's like kind of a traumatic thing to admit that you're atheist. Less and less, but but that's certainly a theme in this book she's edited, and I'm going to talk to her about that. So um, a lot of lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in the calendar. How about that panel that you were working on the the with at Union? Um, um, where they, they solicited me to try and find somebody from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, did you know, if the, did that get put together? Is that going to happen? Actually, the nature of the panel has changed. We may eventually do that panel. The nature, for now, the panel we're uh, putting together, the subject has changed. We're, we still may try to get somebody from JTS. We have somebody in mind. I forget his name. But the, the panel is now going to be on moral imagination, <clears throat> you know, the ability to... to understand the way the world looks to somebody on the other, especially on the other side of some kind of line, some tribal line or ideological line. Um, uh, but the, the, the subject we were going to do, which is kind of, you know, religion without God, we may do that down the road. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Bob, well, thank you so much for another enjoyable well, conversation. Thank you. I, I learned a lot and uh, maybe we'll have another tutorial uh, down, down the line. All right, my friend, take care of yourself. Okay. See you around. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.